May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So today is Christ the King Sunday, and as I sat down in my study to prepare for today's sermon, I had the Hallelujah Chorus playing in my head. Not the Hallelujah part, the part that comes after it. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there's something I don't even know that Natalie knows about this, but the Messiah makes me cry. It does. I can't listen to it without crying. So I'm sitting in my office getting ready to prepare for a sermon, listening to this, and tears are coming down my face, and I'm like, please God, don't let anyone come in right now. (laughs) So I'm listening to this and thinking about, well, what could I possibly add to this beautiful piece of music, which is, I think, the closest that we will ever get to the heavenly chorus, this side of the grave. Well, in one of those God moments, I looked over uh, at a pile of books on my desk by Fleming Rutledge. Um, And John will put the picture of her up there. Fleming Rutledge is considered widely to be one of the best preachers in North America. She's an Anglican like us, and she has a powerful gift of preaching. And wouldn't you know it, when I pulled this book down, I opened it, and it opened to a sermon entitled, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I said, I'm not going to beat her at her game. I'm just going to read this sermon. So today... Or as I was preparing, I thought, I can't beat her at this. I just, I am going to read this. And so today's sermon is by Fleming Rutledge. No, I'm not going to read it in her voice. She has a wonderful southern drawl. I'm going to read it in my voice, so no uh, falsetto here today. When I was in seminary in the 1970s, the whole idea of kingship in Christian thought was called into question. We weren't supposed to be thinking about kings. To begin with... Kings were men, and we were being called away from the idea of men ruling over women. But then again, the whole idea of ruling was suspect in the Woodstock nation, or in the time of the Woodstock nation. Everything was supposed to be egalitarian and communal. Children were brought up on Barney. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. Everybody's equal. Everybody gets a prize. No more rulers, no more lords, no more kings. But then along came the Lion King movie and the Lion King musical, and now a Lion King live adaptation. Children and their parents everywhere have been thrilled by the story of a lordly lion. Kings apparently are not going away. In 2004, the Oscar for Best Picture was given to The Return of the King, a movie adaptation by J.R. Tolkien's novel of the same name. It's pretty funny, actually. The power of certain symbols is so deeply ingrained into the human psyche that no amount of political correctness is going to make much headway against them. This, to this day, however, a significant number of people in churches still refuse to call Jesus of Nazareth by the title Lord. There was controversy about this in the Living Church magazine, which, for those of you who don't know, is an Anglican North American publication, uh, just a few years ago. Lord has the same essential meaning as king, and they both mean ruler. When we refer to Jesus Christ as Lord and King, we are expressing faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who was, who is, and who will be the ruler of the universe. As we heard in our second reading today, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, who was, who is, and who is to come, 
the Almighty. Okay, but we're being told that passages like this are a problem, a big problem. Indeed, there's a major movement in mainline churches and parts of the academic world to strip away all these transcendent descriptions of Jesus and to present him instead as a teacher, healer, rabbi, sage, spiritual leader, and a moral exemplar. Now, this movement isn't new, but we're seeing a new version of it. It's taken hold in the churches without people even noticing it's happened. I hope you'll cut me some slack here and not take this personally. I am speaking about what I read, hear, and see in the church at large. It's a trend across all the Christian denominations, and no one is untouched by it. In our readings today, appointed for Christ the King Sunday, we hear some radical claims about the kingship of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We need to remember, first of all, that this whole Hebrew Christian thing is anchored in the Word of God. Now, no one can be forced to believe in the Bible, but it's not right to try to make it say what it clearly doesn't say. If we want to read the Bible as the religious thoughts of human beings, we certainly can do that. But, it's not, but if that's what we do, then we ought to realize that we are ignoring the entire foundation the church's book is built on. You can see this foundation clearly in the first lines of the farewell of the words of kings. Oh, there's that word again, King David. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel who says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The central claim of this passage is the central claim of the entire scriptures. The God of Israel has spoken. And if he pleases, and he does so please, he can speak through human beings. Now, before we go on, we need to bear in mind that King David, with all his enormous sins, was the person with whom God had established an eternal covenant. We find this today in today's passage from 2 Samuel. The Lord has made with David an everlasting covenant, it says. And we find the same thing in today's psalm. The Lord swore to David an oath from which he will not turn back. And what was that sure oath? Well, we find it in 2 Samuel when the Lord says to King David, Your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. According to the promise of God himself, then, it is through King David and the line of King David that the Messiah is born. Now, if we read this merely as a pious legend, a story like all other stories, even the best of stories, it loses its meaning. Its meaning rests in the claim of King David, that the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is upon my tongue, the God of Israel has spoken. We talked about this actually at the St. James Academy this past week, about how God speaks. And if we fool around with all that, it all falls apart. Now, nobody has to believe that God has spoken, but it's not unreasonable to ask, at the very least, that the Bible readers acknowledge that this is the way the Bible means to be read. The very first lines of the very first chapter of the Bible establish it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's creation by speech, by word. So according to the word of God, there came a man named Jesus from Nazareth in provincial Galilee. He was poor and had no standing in that world. But he preached the kingdom of God and attracted a lot of notice. It's hard for us to grasp the nature of the commotion that surrounded Jesus because we don't live in the circumstances of that time. 
but we can try to understand how the Jewish people had been living for centuries through defeat and exile, disappointed return, various rebellions, further decline, and foreign occupation, waiting, 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 waiting for the promised king of David's line. That's the reason why Jesus is so often called the son of David in the Gospels. Here's a typical example. A blind and deaf demoniac, a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to Jesus and Jesus healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the promised king? After a brief fury of popularity, the religious and secular authorities alike took great offense at Jesus and saw that he was eliminated. After his horrible, degrading death by public torture, his discredited followers, starting out in Jerusalem and spreading out all over the Mediterranean world, delivered the news that this crucified man was Lord and King of the universe. What? That's what we should be saying. What? A crucified man is Lord and King of the universe? Now again, we don't have to believe what the New Testament says, but we should at least acknowledge that this is indeed what it does say. As in the words of Peter preaching right after Pentecost, God made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This message is a scandal, as St. Paul repeatedly says. It's an offense against all reason and common sense, the idea of a crucified Lord. As a preacher of the gospel for many years, I testify that this message makes less sense to me now than it did when I got started. It's all so irreligious, so unspiritual, so unreasonable. But it's precisely at this point that Paul makes when he says that the gospel of the crucified Lord is a scandal to the Jewish people and foolishness to the Gentile people. Crucified, dead, and buried, but raised on the third day. We say it every Sunday, but, is a, but is, it is a good time to think about it anew. The Advent season begins next week. Most Anglicans, like most people, think of Advent as a time of getting ready for Christmas, but this is a mistake. For centuries, Advent was known as the season of the last things. If you don't believe me, listen to the Advent hymns we will be singing in the next few weeks. They aren't about the birth in Bethlehem at all. Almost all of them are about the second coming. We just read about that. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, every one who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. It is this last day when the kingdoms of this world when the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ that he shall reign forever and ever. Of course that sounds familiar. It's the hallelujah chorus where the words are taken directly from Revelation. And now we come to today's gospel reading from John. Pilate called Jesus and said to him, "Are you king of the Jews?" And Jesus answered, "My kingship is not of this world." If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight and I would not be handed over. But my kingship is not from this world. For this I was born and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? This dialogue sets the kingship of Jesus in the sharpest possible contrast to the kingdoms of the world. This man, who is in so many ways a human being just like us, 
has something about him that is just as uncanny. He can't be made into a religious sage without deleting large parts of the New Testament. He is, as he says here, from another world. The Christian Church calls this the Incarnation, the descent of God from the eternal realm of uncreated light into the violence, darkness, sickness, and death of this world. The Lord Jesus says this in John 8, verse 23. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, could not be more uncomprehending. What is truth, he asks, as if Jesus had posed a philosophical question. At the University of Virginia, there is a gateway arch with these words on it. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. These are the very words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But the university has taken them out of context. You see, in the word of the world of the university, the truth is an abstraction, even more so in our postmodern age. But this isn't what Jesus' words mean at all. Here he says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And if the Son makes you free, you will be free in indeed, Jesus says. Pilate is just like us if we want to read the Bible as though it were science or philosophy. Pilate has the truth standing right in front of him, and he doesn't recognize it because he doesn't recognize the Son of God. It is important for preachers to take moments to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If we choose to, cho if we choose to think of Jesus as less than this, we should be aware of what we are doing. Whom do we want to be ruler of our lives? Whom do we want to be ruler of this world of sin and death? Let's answer the first question first. Who do we want to be ruler of our lives? That's easy to answer. Me. I want me to be the ruler of my own life. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. That's the American way. Then why hasn't your career gone the way you've hoped? Why is your marriage troubled? Why aren't your children doing what you want them to do? Why are you sick and unable to get better? Second question. Whom do you want to be ruler of this world of sin and death? Maybe you don't think of the world that way. Maybe you think of the sandy beaches and the beautiful waters of Lake Erie. Maybe you think of it as hitting the perfect golf shot. Maybe you think of it as Norman Rockwell's Thanksgiving painting. I know a man who is cheer famous for being cheerful and optimistic about everything. He's always upbeat, always ready with a solution for problems. He's very successful in his lifelong career, valued and respected by his community. On the eve of his daughter's wedding, his son took a fatal overdose of drugs. I saw him months later not knowing. His face was shadowed. He had obviously been through something. I inquired. He told me what had happened to his family. And here's what he said to me, and here Rutledge had, had directly quoted it, as she says in a footnote. She didn't want to forget what he said, so she wrote it down immediately after. The man said to me this, We are not in control of our own lives. Who would plan for his son to OD on the night of his sister's wedding? Then he said, I went back to the baptism service in the Book of Common Prayer. I saw that in baptism the child becomes God's. My son belongs to God. 
Nothing can change that. This thing is between him and God. I can let it go. That's what it means to trust in God as the ruler of death. That's what it means to trust in God, the King of Kings. You see, every baptism is a victory over death. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will never turn back. Baptism is the action of God in this world to ratify his everlasting covenant in the lives of each of his beloved children. It is the action of Jesus Christ as Lord and King over all the demonic powers. It is the action of God in the tortured death of his Son, where on the cross he drew himself upon himself all the wickedness and all the pain and all the sorrow in the world, and in the resurrection conquered it. Conquered it all because he comes from the world where death has no dominion, and he returned to the world where death has no dominion. From dominion, from that dominion, he rules as living Lord. His dominion is light. His dominion is truth. His dominion is life. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it.